Um, the 20th century was the century of mass death, and yet, contrary to popular misconception, the greatest killer of all time was neither Hitler nor Stalin, but an illness often mistakenly associated with the common cold. And we're talking here about epidemic influenza. It infected approximately one billion people around the globe and may have killed approximately 100 million. And we'll be looking at the, uh, the figures and crunching the figures uh, later. So to discuss this, uh, we have assembled a stellar panel here. Uh, all the way from UCC, we have uh, Andrew McCarthy, uh, and next to me on my right, uh, Patricia Marsh, uh, Marsh, who works in the Pub Public Records Office of Northern Ireland. Uh, Ida Milne uh, on my left, and Ida has a book coming out, by the way, I have to plug this, <laughs> Stacking the Coffins, Influenza War and Revolution in Ireland, 1918 to 1919. Now, this is just a proof copy, guys, because this, this book is not out yet, so keep an eye out for this, the end of May. And then finally, on my left, uh, flown in all the way from Israel, just for this event actually, uh, Guy Biner of Ben-Gurion uh, University. So the, the topic here tonight is greatest killer of the 20th century, the flu pandemic, 1918 to 19, uh, 1919. Now, I usually start head schools with you know, a simple question, and of course, the simple questions aren't necessarily simple. What is flu? Because you know, people you know, talk about flu, sometimes they, they may just have a heavy cold, or even that more mysterious thing, man flu, right? Just when you know, <laughs> the man in the house doesn't feel like getting out of bed in the morning. Uh, so my question is, is there a doctor in the house uh, to explain this to me? No, we have Anne Moore. So this is unusual, we're going straight to the audience this one for some expert advice. Now Anne, there's a, there's a microphone there, a radio mic, uh, if you could just use that. Oh yes, and just to say, this is all being recorded, right? And we'll go on a podcast on the History on website, so whatever you, contribution you make, you know, keep, keep it clean, right? Uh, <laughs> so Anne, in about, I don't know, how long does it take to explain what flu is, right? And we, we might look at the variations of this particular type of flu. So Anne, what is it? It could take about 100 years, but I'll keep it very, very brief. Um, so influenza is a virus. Um, and what's it, a, sorry, what's a virus, right, compared to, say, yeah. bacteria? So My job is to ask these to, questions. To give you know. a good example, back in the 1918, when this pandemic broke out, people couldn't see viruses, they're so small. They could only see bacteria and, the, and culture bacteria. So virus is much, much smaller than, than a, a, a bacteria. And it's also got a different composition. It's made of a nucleic acid called RNA, which is much more prone to error. Mm. And the influenza virus is interesting in the fact that it's got nine little pieces of this RNA strand inside it that can mix and match um, in different ways. And that's why we, one of the reasons why we see new influenza viruses coming through all the time. So the just, just, just stop you there. So this thing mutates then as well. So it's, it's, it's a moving target. Absolutely. Right. It's very okay. prone to, to mutating and mixing and matching. And it infects the upper, uh, the nasal passages, and it can go all the way down to the lungs as well. Yeah. And the viruses have to go inside a cell to, to create more viruses. So they do that by infecting the cells that are on the outside of the, of the um, nasal passages and all the way down to the lung. And then it starts making daughter viruses and they infect other cells. Now, when you say affecting the lungs, what does it do to the lungs? So it gets into cells and then it kills those cells as it's proliferating each cell. If you imagine this, uh, this room as a cell, you just get more and more and more and more viruses within it. And eventually there just isn't room for anything else to happen. So the virus the, or the cell basically breaks. 
and all these viruses, can, new, new viral uh, daughter of progeny can be released from the cell. Mm -hmm. And then they, they infect other cells and it causes massive cell death. And then the immune system recognizes that and starts going to attack where the viruses have infected to try and kill them. And Sometimes, especially with the 1918 uh, strain, the immune response was too much, almost okay, an so overload. Okay, the immune system overreacts. Exactly. Right. In, in, for some influenza viruses, the right. 1918 strain was one of those, where the immune system, it kills off the virus-infected cells, but it creates so much damage that um, other things happen as well. And the, in the 1918 pandemic, the virus was of such a type that you had this overinflammation, but you also had... Uh, very extreme infection by viruses, and you had so much damage that then these bacteria that people knew about could actually infect the the. Okay, uh, so the it, lungs. it's complicated then because it leads into other things, right? Exactly. Right. Now, um, what killed you? Now, how did people die if they did die? In it, uh, two things. One would be virus infection. A lot of it was also bacterial pneumonia. Um, so pneumonia. I mean. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, because I, I, I was reading things like, you know, there were hemorrhages and also really horrendous things. That happened things. as well, and there was a lot of effects. Literally blood coming out of every absolutely, orifice. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So for a lot of, it was, it was partly virus-mediated and over-stimulation kind of by the virus of the body, and also secondary pneumonia that bacteria could get, then get into that, those damaged lungs and start proliferating as well. Um, there was also the 1918 flu virus also uh, apparently had um, effects on the brain, that it could actually go into the brain, and that could cause personality effects as well. Really? Mm. Oh, that's an interesting yeah. one. We'll come back to that one, right? Um, well, listen, I think we, we, may, we may come back to you, uh, if these people are spoofing too much up here, I may go back to some <laughs> expert uh, um, advice on, on the, the, the medical side of it. Okay, let's start with this. Where did this start, right? That's the first question. Where, where is the first evidence? Oh, sorry, just before I finish, Anne, right? So this flu is nothing like the kind of flu that people would experience today. That's, that's one thing. It's, it's quite similar. There, there's some, if you look at the genetic sequence of it, there are some similarities between 1918, uh, a little bit 1957, and with the 2009 strain. So there's a little bit of okay. similarity. Okay. There's one point that's worth actually mentioning in this case, is that one of the great accomplishments in terms of medical history and maybe medicine in general, is that they managed to reconstruct the DNA, or the RNA, of the original virus. And for that, you had to find living tissue from the period, because a century had passed, almost a century. It was about 80, 90 years afterwards. So they had to go, and they managed to track down tissue of people who were buried in permafrost areas, areas that had been completely frozen. And there had been a few attempts to do that. Areas, Eskimos had been very heavily hit in certain areas. And they managed to get a bit of tissue, and from that, in labs, which was actually an American military project originally funded, they managed to reconstruct. So it's remarkable. They actually, we actually know now how the virus looked in 1918. It's not just speculation, which is remarkable. Okay, let's start the question then. When does this first manifest itself, and where? Ida. Well, there are two main theories about, about where the flu originated. Uh, the Americans basically claimed that it happened in Fort Riley in Kansas, and they fight for, uh, is it Albert Gitchell is supposed to be patient, uh, the first patient. But that's in February 1918. 
but John Oxford then, who is a British virologist, insists that he thinks it began in um, at either, either side of the channel, where you have the ideal conditions for cooking a new flu, because you have soldiers uh, coming to and from uh, the war, war at Aldershot and then across the Tablet at the other side, and soldiers are kept um, uh, in very close quarters, so, so it's easier for flu to spread. Obviously, you have to be in kind of sneezing distance for it to, so to spread, but they're also kept with the food for the army, which also happened to be vectors of influenza. So you have pigs, you have geese, and you have hens all kept together. And, and that's really... I mean, presumably there's, I mean, I've heard of avian flu, pig mm. swine flu, you know, swine yeah, flu. Yeah. So th this virus affects, you know, poultry, pigs, pigs. and humans, right? Yeah. And the same, is it the case that this, it's the same virus can mutate from, from one animal to the, to the other? Now, I think no. you'd have to go to the endocrinologist for that one. <laughs> just if you, Paula, if you just leave, if you hold on to that microphone for a minute. Just if you just answer that question, you know, because I, I tell you what, I, I'm, I'm just anxious that people in the audience, uh, you know, understand what we're talking about here. This is not just, you know, man flu, right, or whatever. This is something serious. Yeah, just on that one, right. So it is um, the kind of natural reservoir for all influenza viruses are poultry and birds. So they, and depending on the, the flu virus and depending on the bird, they can harbor that for years on end without infecting any other, any other species. And again, in, within the birds, it'll change a little bit. Pigs will always have some sort of influenza virus as well. And when you have that kind of cocktail of pig, bird, and human, you can have that mishmash of those different genetic sequences from the different viruses coming together to uh, result in a new flu virus that's mutated and mixed together that doesn't, that's never been seen in humans before or in birds and chickens. So for example, in Asia, the, the, similar to what happened in 1918 in, in the trenches, um, you have very close quarters of pigs, uh, geese and ducks and chickens and humans. And that's an absolute perfect breeding ground for a new type of virus to emerge that, that, isn't, uh, that nobody has immunity to. I'll, throw, I'll just if I can throw in another piece here that as it is, these are the thesis, thesis mm -hmm. we have now that it's either America. One of the reasons in America is that lots of research being done on America, so obviously they find it within their scope. And then a lot of research being done on World War I, on the Great War, so it falls within that scope. But we actually don't, we'll never, at the moment, we can't know where it really began because it ravages China, it ravages whole areas in Asia. There's, this speculation might have come from China as well. Yeah, because these Chinese labor corps, basically yeah. slaves, yeah. basically digging trenches and ditches wherever, you know. And, and we don't have the figures for China to know if it began there because we don't have the documentation okay. fully, and that's a resolution, so... This is an interesting question, Guy. In, in a sense, the more you study it, the more you'll find, right? So yeah. you're suggesting that if they do more study in China, they may, they may actually shift the... the the focus in that direction. In, in general, it's remarkable. We're 100 years after the event, but there's so little being done on it. It's still in such initial stages that if you ask such questions, it seems obvious. Where did it start? We still haven't, aren't able, lots of places we know where it first arrived. You still have to put all these patterns together to figure out how it worked. So we still don't have a full picture of what happens on a world well, scale. Moving on from where it started then, I mean, how can we track how it spread and how quickly it spread and to where? I think we're a long way from that. I think we still have bits and pieces of a puzzle, but it's still a puzzle. On but it's basically worldwide. I mean, so it's, 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 a, it's a stupid question. Right? So, so, but but when, you come to, when you come to a micro level, like in Ireland, then people like Tricia and Ida are exactly doing the work now. So Ireland has a much better picture. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, very little was known about Ireland. Right. Very little, hardly anything, till 
and it's a remarkable when you think about it, that the question was never asked. Mm, mm. You know, it, it bothers me time and time again how historiography, you think that what's important in history is what leads to writing of history. How many books have been written about the Great Irish Famine? Very important topic. There'll always be another book about it. We say we haven't written a lot about the Great War, but there's still been a lot written about the Great War, even in Ireland. But issues of the Great Flu, mm. not less important, but it's just only now coming out. Let's, let's come back to that one uh, later in the discussion. Andrew, I just want to go to you, like, just bringing it back to the local situation here, right? So what, how prepared was, say, Ireland, and this city, for example, for, 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 for what was about to happen to them? What was the, the medical infrastructure at the time? Um, it was pretty poor, rudimentary. Not like today. Very... Uh, <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> uh, it, 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 there was overlaps, uh, duplications, and it was very convoluted administrative structure, medical structures. You had the poor law system itself looking after uh, workhouses. You had the Medical Charities Act of 1851 setting up dispensaries which built on the poor law unions. There was about 160 poor law unions in Ireland. But Ireland was then subdivided into about 630 odd dispensary uh, units or districts that had usually a medical officer in place who was tasked with dealing with the sick poor and then whatever private income he could make from private uh, patients. Uh, it's further complicated with the addition in about 1900, after the Local Government Act, of the county councils, where you now have uh, th those councils tasked with responsibility for tuberculosis and uh, school medical examinations, the, uh, areas like that, but you have no central coordination of these councils. It's only 1925 when the Free State Government uh, introduces the county chief medical officer of health that you get a coordinating role over these district medical officers. Right. Uh, the hospital structures, largely uh, independent, voluntary, denominational, religious run hospitals. Uh, there is a huge other institutional structure there, the mental health hospitals, but they're not connected to the local government board. To compound it all, there's no political representation of the local government board in the British cabinet. Right. So it's a functional administration that gets its policy in boxes shipped over from, from London. Okay, so and Patricia, what was the situation in Belfast then? Just a, a well, the situation in Belfast would have been it would have been exactly because it's still part of an All Ireland system. It would have been the same system. But in Belfast, you had a medical superintendent officer of health who was employed by the local authority. But there was 13 medical officers, and they were employed by um, the poor law. They were part of the poor law system, and these medical officers were supposed to report into. Uh, not only the local government board in Ireland, but also in a different way to the local authority. And that's where there's a lot of confusion sometimes with figures in Ireland, that the figures that the Registrar-General has are maybe different from the figures that um, the uh, Dr Bailey, who was the medical super officer, intended of health. It's a long a sentence to say. Uh, uh, 
they would, they would differ um, in, in that way. So there would have been, in Belfast, there would probably been about 13 uh, medical officers uh, in the different wards of the city, and they would, have had, they would have looked after and had the dispensary districts there looking after those poor. And the main hospital, there was the Royal Victoria Hospital, which was a private hospital, and at that time it, it um, was really a military hospital for the... Um, the servicemen that had come back from the war and the main the main uh, hospital like probably in Cork would have been the infirmary, the workhouse infirmary. And did the, the, the medical practitioners have any idea what they were dealing with? Well in, in, in Cork, not really. They knew uh, in late October, 26th of October, uh, flu hits Cork. They know it's coming. It's in the press, it's on the way, it's coming, but they weren't able to mobilize to, to deal with it. Right. You don't have the same infrastructure in place that you do today. Uh, you don't have the same communication system. You know, right. it takes about a month for a circular to get out. Uh, you're more effectively putting a notice in the newspaper, but that's also creating a public reaction as well. People are getting alarmed when they hear the flu is coming. Uh, so there was no medical preventive. Patricia and I were speaking earlier and we were talking about the, the ineffectiveness of uh, a vaccine that they were trying uh, at the time. Patricia, be more well, I suppose in Belfast it's different because, as you're saying, it came into Cork in the second wave. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe we should point out at this point there was three waves of the pandemic. And the first wave um, hit uh, Ireland or hit Belfast and, and Dublin and parts of Ireland in June 1918. And it, was, um, it, it wasn't maybe as serious as the second wave. It was... Uh, it was it was considered, I think, to a lot of, uh, as a seasonal flu. It would be, you know, a more seasonal. Like, you get the flu. It, it, it sort of registered because there was a lot of uh, people who had it, but maybe the mortality wasn't as high as it would have been in the later waves. So right. that wave came into Belfast. Then we had the second wave, which would have been in October, November, December, right through to January, right. and then there was the third wave, which would have been um, February to April. Now that's the way it would have been in Belfast. April 1919, 1919, you know, um, if 20,057 die and there are about 3,000 extra excess pneumonia deaths, uh, this is the official death certification. Um, but uh, myself and a, a colleague from the, the Royal College of Surgeons, Anthony Kinsler, we've estimated that it, it perhaps infected about 800,000. So it's infecting those people, about one-fifth of the population, which is just over four million on the, on the whole island. So it silences whole communities as it goes through. And it would seem, when you follow the newspaper reports, that it had travelled just about through every community by then, because newspapers will talk about uh, whole areas going quiet, that commerce is stilled. People are sending out for their messages if they can, rather than going out. Even people are well are not wanting to go out in case they catch it. But for a lot of families, they're just too sick to move. But no. the, yeah, mm. talk, to just add one point again, mm. from a general point of view, because we've got the Irish experts here, so I'll step back. But in a way, it, it's also a misleading question. You see, we think if there's a disease, you go to a doctor for medicine, right? Yeah. 
But actually, this is with the moment where modern medicine is caught with its pants down. It's terrible in a sense, because modern medicine doesn't even know what influenza is at the time, which is actually a terrible mental shock because people had been told that now we're in the 20th century, modern medicine has discovered everything, all this bacteriology, exactly germs they understand, and they don't even know that there's such a thing as an influenza virus, they think it might still be bacteria. So they don't have the answers. Right. Even if they have this, many things you can do in terms of public medicine, that's something else, in terms of you know, people not congregating, closing down cinemas or not, issues like that. But a doctor doesn't have the real cure for it, which actually asks, which raises interesting questions. Because who can help you in this sense is actually nurses. So we have a whole gender issue going on here. Most of the doctors are male. They don't have answers. Women are not being given credit here, but they're the real heroes. They can give you help in helping you get through it. And that, I think, is a story which is all over the world, but also particularly strong in Ireland as well. Guy, can, can I say, was censorship an issue here? Because right? this is during wartime, right? And I was going to ask the question of why is it called Spanish flu? I mean, Spain is, is neutral. So, can you answer that question? Why is it called Spanish flu? Well, the, the reason is, by, by the time, uh, sorry, is that um, all the wartime uh, armies had, were down with the flu and the guns have gone quiet by the time um, it spreads to Spain, where Alfonso XIII of Spain, the King of Spain, and several thousand of his courtiers become ill. But that's reported in the Spanish newspapers because they're not uh, part of the war and therefore censorship doesn't apply to so them. So the, the issue was ventilated in Spain yeah. and it becomes yeah. associated yeah. with And with forever Spain. after it's called Spanish flu, yeah. Now, normally, um, if you have any kind of a, 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 an epidemic, pandemic, uh, if you look at mortality, it's like a U, right? In other words, it's, it, it affects um, you know, young children and older people, and it's kind of a, a curve like this. Now, who, 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 did, who did Spanish uh, flu kill, this flu kill? Well, in terms of age, it yeah, killed the, the under fives, yeah. and it killed people in midlife between 25 and, and 35, which is, Anne was saying earlier, you know, that they, they were the people who would have very strong immune systems. So these are the healthiest people? Yeah, yeah the, the, healthiest, sort of it, the it, athletes you see dying, the cyclists you see dying, the GA players you see dying, uh, the entire, um, I think Wexford actually won a fourth set of All-Ireland football medals and, uh, um, because um, some of the other teams were down with flu and prevented that Kildare. It then, yeah. <laughs> I, I, being Wexford, I couldn't resist getting that in I there. Like <laughs> uh, but also, in terms of individual uh, people, the, the Registrar-General at the time class of, um, divided the population, the death statistics, into four different groups. So there were four different classes of death statistics. So the, the, the upper class, then the second, third, and fourth, and the fourth are the kind of general labours. And you see that um, class isn't a particularly good way to assess influenza. Instead, it's kind of access to the public. From, when you look within each class category, you'll see the people who deal with the public are the more likely ones to die. So even in the top class, the kind of gentry class, it's, it's, it's uh, bankers and high-ranking army officers who deal with the public who get it. And then shopkeepers are really huge victims. Um, teachers uh, and also in the lower classes, postal workers, uh, policemen. So deal with the public, basically. Deal the more the people public. you meet. Yeah. So yeah. there's clusters there. Yeah. Uh, Patricia, what's the situation in Belfast then? What's the profile? Um, well, 
there isn't really a, there wasn't really a profile the same sort of thing wasn't really done for for belfast but you find that um the the same sort of w graph as you're talking about so the very old and the very young and the um the 15 the, the, middle. the middle group they, they are still the people that are the main the, the main people that die of the flu but and then there's the gender issue which is a which is a different issue again were did more men than women die well, of the flu the well in ireland as a whole they would say that more men died, died than women but in certain parts of the north of ireland in certain belfast in armagh and um Donegal, funnily enough, there were more women, a higher percentage of women than men that died. Now, when I'm saying it's higher, it's marginal. It isn't like 10%, it is just like maybe 49 and 51, but it's, it's still, it, you know, that you're finding that there's more women. And my theory about in those areas is that the, uh, certainly in Belfast, there was a lot of women working. There were men, women. In fact, the first, the very first um, notification of the flu in Belfast was in June 1918, and it was the munitions factory of Mackey's asking or saying to the girls, come back to work. The women, it was a women's department in, in the munitions factory that was shut down, and they were telling them to, that, that the, the factory was now opening to come back to work because the, there was so many people off with the flu. So you're finding that uh, there's a lot of linen factories in, in, in County Armagh, in Lurgan, Portadown, places like that, Lisburn, and in Belfast. And that they had a very high female population, most of the women, and they worked in very, very close quarters. They shared cups, they shared towels, and certainly in the linen factories in um, Belfast, there was a a tradition called kissing the shuttle, which is the shuttlecock, and they had to pull the thread through. So they sucked it through. But they didn't have their own personal shuttles. They would have used whatever shuttle came along, okay. and that's when they did it. And this was considered wow. a real health hazard, and that was and it was considered to be one of the reasons why TB was so high in Belfast. And it wasn't abolished until 1952. So you know the girls kept doing that for years. So the, the, you would sort of th you sort of think well, the the possibility was that there would be a lot more women would have died. There was because they, that they were in closer proximity, that they, they were out working. They were also the nurses, the professional nurses, and they were also the home nurses. So when you're talking about in the home, it's normally the, the woman or the lady or the sisters that look after everybody else, and that you did find that that those people maybe would be more susceptible to getting the flu. But were they more vulnerable to dying from the flu? Well, that's a different that's a different story, but, but we don't know the morbidity figures as we've just said. So, that was, so keep them. What you're saying there, but but the women that that would balance out. I mean, my my assumption was yeah. that men would be more affected because they're they're in the army. You know, they're they're they yes. are in uh -huh. the. Yeah. You know, you'd assume that, yeah. but it seems to me that once this thing gets out, it's a leveler. It just yeah. hits everybody, regardless yeah. of class. Very or back, rapidly, yes. The story in Cork within a week, a thousand cases, and, uh, and it's I'm interesting. What sort measures did they take? They, they closed the schools. The they, 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 they tell people. They do? issued uh, orders to close the schools, cinemas, as Guy uh, said earlier. But a lot of the people didn't comply with them. But that's good advice, though, isn't it? I mean, they closed closed, li closed libraries yeah. and uh, and all of that, where people were noted being close yeah. contact to reduce learning from the experience north, because Cork wasn't hit initially. Yeah. Okay, right. but it didn't work. The, uh, flu gripped the city, was what the media were reporting within a week. It was prevalent in all parts of the city. Nothing to do with, say, tenements or anything in Cork. 
it, it, it equally dug into all parts of the city and then spread very, very quickly to Yall and then to the west, West Cork. It was hit within two weeks. You have the in Skibreen. Just go back there. When is, it, when is it first hit in Cork? 26th of October is okay, first report. No, this is the second wave. The, the, this is the second wave of flu well after, and Cork, Cork medical authorities would have been aware of the measures taken in Dublin, in Belfast, where there were primary hits. Even though there's US sailors here from from Well, from they didn't April. land. The USS Dixie is in May in, in Cork. Uh, the main American engagement would have been West Cork, Bear Island, where they were building a naval, uh, sorry, airplanes for the US military to, to defend the Atlantic. Uh, there was no engagement of the troops in Cork City, even though the female population of Cork, I believe, were... Yes, if, you, if you're at last year's health school, you know that the US sailors were barred from entering Cork City in case they turned the heads of the local women. And it seems to me... But it's obvious then that saved the city from, from an initial... Possibly. Possibly. possibly quite right. possibly. We assume, so we assume that. The virtue was saved. Um, their, 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 their good health as well, probably, yeah. Um, and other things. <laughs> Maps of the flu is 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 that um, Cork is saved because the soldiers are the, and, and sailors are treated on board ships. But up in Donegal, which similarly has a naval base in Loch Swilly, um, Donegal has a really bad experience of the flu right throughout 1918 and 1919. And Trisha and I have different rows and interesting discussions about why that that is. But one. <laughs> I, I interviewed a woman who, who became Ireland's second oldest woman. She didn't quite live long enough to be the oldest woman. She died at 107. Sure. Kathleen McMenamin was her name. But she told me the reason she really thought it spread into the local community, she was 15 when it happened, was because uh, the soldiers were coming uh, on, on board to be treated, uh, sorry, onto land to be treated. So that, that may be one of the reasons. But Tricia, you have other reasons, I think. Well, uh, my, yeah, Donegal... Um funny enough, did have one of the highest mortalities um, per population. It is, a, it is a, not a highly population, but if you're looking at the death rates per thousand of population, in 1918, Inishowen had the highest death rate um, per thousand of population, and then Letterkenny, Donegal, Stranroller, they were all quite high, and in, in 1919, again, they were all in the top, they were all in the, in the, in the top percentage, certainly in the north of Ireland. Um, and my theory, or not my theory, but yeah, I would say, yeah, there, there were, you, you got to blame that there was a port. It was also, if you look at the Inishowen Peninsula, there was quite a few army camps there. There's Finner Camp as well in Donegal. But, and, and in, certainly in the third wave um, in Falcara, the, it was blamed, the high incidence of flu was blamed on soldiers being demobilised coming back from the war. But also another thing in Donegal was, was uh, seasonal migration, where um, a lot of the younger people would have gone off to Scotland to, to, for work, potato picking or whatever it was they did there. And there was a very high incidence of deaths in Scotland of these people, and they were brought back to Donegal to be waked, number one, and then um, buried. And um, the, the, 
Waking the Dead, as we say, was very strongly uh, frowned upon, certainly in the north, mm -hmm. and it was considered because of the open coffin that the disease may spread. Now, we know that the disease doesn't spread like that, but it, you, you could surmise that the bodies didn't come back on their own. Somebody would have escorted the bodies back. The flu virus would have lived on, if somebody sneezed over the coffin, would have lived on it for three days or so. And then they would have been waked in tiny places in Donegal, as in, in lots of parts of Ireland, tiny little cottages you have a whole load of people you know what a wake's like maybe 30 40 people in and then it could have spread and th there was a very high incidence in these areas and as well that the figures when I've looked at sort of figures recently in um, Donegal you're finding that maybe a whole family of maybe say a family a mother father three or four children and a lodger all die of flu in the one house that would skew the figures quite a lot if, in a small population mm. if, if, if a big family uh, all get the flu or two or three people in the family get the flu and they die so can, can I just clarify how yeah. do you spread it is it is it Droplets from, from, Droplet, from, from yes, so sneezes or whatever. Yeah. Right. Okay. So if you sneezed, if I sneezed today on this table and nobody cleaned it up, it would that virus and I had virus that would stay um, there so, for three so days. I think it's the three days. And so, on and if I sneezed on the cardigan, that would be a day. You know, it's it's, so, it's so just face masks would be effective. You know, where they're used. I mean, you, you do see photographs of people wearing face masks. Well, it would stop. Well, it would sneeze would go back, but but um, uh, the virus can get through. It has to be a very high or a very very, very fine. Pardon? Whatever the, the, the standard is for welders is the same yeah. standard that prevents flu virus actually going through. The muslin masks that they were, no, uh, that they were saying and at those times wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have been any good I, at all. Can I just zoom back a little bit, Guy, to you, right? Uh, and again, this is a kind of a broad question. Would there have been a pandemic if there hadn't been a, a world war going on? You know, it's again one of these questions we don't know, isn't it? Because the, the, the speculation is so, is so rife here. We believe, like, the, it seems like it can't be consequential, right? It seems that there has to be a connection between the Great War and the Great Flu. But then again, the it, you can't prove it. Now, you do, now, there is something that you can prove, right? There is a lot of mobility happening in the world, and this yeah. happens on a worldwide scale. So, of course, the war is, it contributes to it. The question is, does the war generate it, and then can we trace it back? to an army camp at a place in France, not necessarily. The war definitely plays a role in spreading in the world because it is a world war. Yeah. And we forget that, by the way, because most of the literature on the world war looks at the Western Front, mm -hmm. and it's much bigger. But we've got to realize also, and this is where the cliches come in. Already at the time, it's not a cliche, it's not a recent cliche, the flu that killed more people than the war. Now, the flu didn't kill more people than the war in Europe because the Western Front was a killer beyond belief. Yet in the world, it's true. And then you ask yourself, what about the biggest mortality rate is in India? We don't even know the mortality rates in China. In Russia, or in Africa, most of Africa we don't know. Russia, which is this massive country, right? The empire, the Russian empire, both Europe and Asia, you'd expect that there'd be statistics, but there aren't, because it happens just after the Russian Revolution during the Russian Civil War. So there are, there's other issues on the table to deal with. Nobody even looks at the mortality. Nobody even knows the full picture. So all these things are happening, but the world is a time which is not good for a pandemic to happen because of all this mobility right. and people moving in and out. And so, of course, there's a connection to the, to the war. To spill it out makes it it's more difficult to trace exactly what it means. So that's rather disappointing you don't know. That's allowed. Death certification is very rudimentary. And because of the, the cholera pandemics in the 19th century, there's a lot more interest in it. And there's a realization that you can control disease by 
looking at the statistics and monitoring and seeing where outbreaks are and then you know introducing things like barrier methods and things like that okay. so we're seeing the development of statistics and that's the first time they're really right. really tested and the development of public health mm. i mean this is all of school for the 20th century yeah right public health is an issue that you could say we've always dealt with in some way or other but this is where it's becoming professionalized at this time they realize these notions that you've got to close down the movie halls um well, look, and you can't enforce it. And you can't enforce it. They couldn't close down the cinemas. They weren't given the authority from the local government board of Ireland to do so. They yeah. closed them down to clean them. And even that, the, um, the, the Cinematographers Association in Belfast refused to do that because they said they were going to lose money, £600,000, which had been a lot of money in those days, um, if, if they had to, to do the closures that the, the council wanted. So they, they proposed their own. Uh, and it wasn't really closures. It was just that there would be 15 minutes between uh, showings and they would disinfect or clean and have a bit of ventilation. So, um, the, the, and even, even when it comes to the schools being closed, uh, the national schools closed, but you have schools in Belfast, um, the, you know, the Belfast Institute, they didn't. They didn't close and there was fatalities. There was a real outbreak in that school and the borders uh, got, some of the borders got the flu and a couple died. And the same in Wallace, I think it was Wallace School in, Lis in Lisburn. And they didn't close and it was the, the same thing that the, the borders, the, the kids that were boarding there, they, um, the, the pandemic spread within that isolated and they weren't sent home and, and some of them died. If, so there was if, tragedies if in that way. If you closed the school at the time, the teachers weren't guaranteed wages. Who was going to pay them? That's right. So that's they were right. anxious yeah. to stay open yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's another issue as well, is, is there was no health insurance. So, so, no. so you know, no. a very little, not health insurance like we'd have today. So they didn't work, you didn't eat, yeah. essentially. Yeah. That's it. Can I just, just be, I just don't want to leave the, the first war for a second. My next question, follow-up question is, did the flu pandemic affect the outcome of the war? In other words, did it affect one side more than the other? Again, I'll throw the speculations in there, and I like putting question marks. Yes, you'll hear a lot of don't knows from me in the end, because I actually believe that the literature that's been written on it to date is very speculative. And I'm not trying to close any things, because I think the issues are not closed. They really have to be looked at, and we'll never know most of the answers. But in terms of throwing out the, the theses that have been brought, brought out, the thesis that have been brought out, well, one of the opinions is, is that the big spring offensive of the German army, which believed that it would have, could have, change the whole fate of the war and the spring offensive doesn't succeed well the german army is hit very very badly by flu and so that doesn't work out and so it, it so might affect the, so the, 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 the spring war. offensive might might have been a more serious it, it, and, and it's again, point again and again there was attempts to hide these figures because of war censorship and not to uh, no commander wanted to put down these figures but the figures are there and so the spring offensive was affected the, the german offensive because it it coincides with one of the waves uh, another example is also, and I don't know, I think that's been overplayed a bit by a certain very important historian, American historian, who actually started and triggered all this debate, a man called Alfred Crosby, um, who wrote one of the most important early books on the pandemic. And his original version was published in 1976. And he realized that to write a book on the pandemic, no publisher wanted. It's not a topic that people are interested in. So you had to give it a bigger reason. I'm trying to maybe read too much into his book, but the title of his book is called Epidemic and Peace. And one of the ideas that he floats there, and I think he's stretching it a bit, but it's an interesting notion, as he looks at the Versailles peace treaties. He's saying, at Versailles, the various leaders are hit by flu. They don't die, 
They're older than the age profile of dying. They survive in a way, but Wilson is hit very badly. Now this is the Wilsonian moment. If you all remember from kind of history lessons at school, this is the moment that Wilson comes as a big, comes with the proposals for a more pacific peace. Mm. A peace without victors, you know, the, the, the 14 points, without, without vengeance, without revenge. And Wilson is out of the game for a large part of Versailles. And then you have the revanchists coming in and making their moment. So does it affect the peace and turn it into a much tougher peace? The peace which will eventually lead to the next war. Mm. Maybe that's putting too much on flu. Yeah. But, you know, these things are happening. It's interesting. Okay, let's, let's wind back here, right? The, 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 the German Spring Offensive of 1918, right? Yeah. That's... Ludendorff's offensive didn't succeed, but it also didn't entirely fail. Germany wasn't beaten militarily yeah, in the field. Exactly. Uh, yeah, but, exactly. but the point again that is... That but then is the, flu, the answer to that, for those who are trying to push the thesis, and they push it too far, is saying that also the home front is hit badly, meaning the whole effort at home, because what does collapse in the end is the home front, right? Yeah. So, flu can be put into the picture. I mean, what, what, how much you give to it depends. The Germans are starved into submission, essentially, right? But yeah. it's the spring offensive then, which of course uh, uh, it, it makes the British government threaten to introduce conscription into Ireland, and then the opposition to that in turn puts more wind in the sails of Sinn Féin, right? So this does have a direct... Uh, now, but then what you're saying, well, speculating on the guy, is that the flu possibly blunted the German spring offensive. And that might explain why the British actually caved in on the issue of conscription pretty, pretty much immediately, you know, by, by, you know, by April 1918. They knew the game was up once they had the general strike against it and so on, right? So, this, so that's, that's like wheels are in wheels. So this flu pandemic and the war is, is affecting what's happening here as well politically, isn't it? I mean, I'm assuming that if you have a, a health thing like this, it is not good to be in government if you're presiding over such a, a, a disaster that inevitably it favours those who are speaking outside the tent, like Sinn Féin, for example. Well, what really happens here is, is that the conscription is, is um, that the, the German plot comes into play here and that the um, British trump up this idea of a German invasion and, you know, the shades of it is 1916 going to happen all over again. And they take away out of circulation all the prominent anti-conscription campaigners claiming that they are part of this conscription. So you have people like um, the 1916 um, kind of female icons like Kathleen Clark and Maud Gaughan and Constance Mark, which are taken away, uh, Griffith is taken away, De Valera is taken away, there's 70 or so of them, there's, it's a fluid number, they come and go, and they're taken away to jail in England. And then Sinn Féin, with its wonderful propaganda machine, incorporates these stories of, you know, our people are away, what will happen to poor Kathleen Clark, her husband is already dead her poor little boys are left at home without their mother what happens if this when this flu comes that she gets it and she dies and Kathleen Clark is already known to have a weak heart so you know the, you see the Sinn Féin propagandists both individual people writing on behalf of their family and the propaganda machine itself the more general the journalists the official ones writing to the newspapers and saying look what's going to happen here if one of these people dies in jail Can and I, yeah sorry if I, if finish it I'll finish your point yeah here. yeah Go ahead, sorry, no, I want to ask a question. Was being put in jail like a death sentence? In other words, were you safer either in jail or out of jail? 
from, from flu. Well, I've got a, my theory that the story of Belfast Jail and the flu is uh, an interesting one. There were people in Belfast Jail and they were in there for a reason <laughs> rather than just being, being arrested um, on the German plot. They were there because yeah. they committed sort of petty crimes, whatever. They were there for legitimate reason. And there'd already been, say, in um, the summer of 1918, there'd already been a bit of trouble in the jail. Uh, the 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 prisoners had kicked up a bit of a fuss and started doing things, and they were they're ameliorated or their their better conditions were removed uh, by the governor, and there was questions asked in Parliament. So they were they were up there, you know, there was a bit of propaganda going on about the, the poor prisoners, and then the flu hit them in. October 1918, and straight away there was the, the Sinn Féin propaganda mill got run. There's a hundred prisoners in Belfast jail, and they've all got the flu and of awful conditions, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, which was rubbish. They had very good, they would have had the best conditions because they had doctors coming in, and they were they got the run of the jail really, you know, to help each other. They, they will say that that they were allowed to go into each other's cells to to nurse each other, and to a certain extent, they were getting the whiskey as was one of the um, one of the cures was alcohol. And they were getting all of that, and uh, but but all you saw in the paper was the poor Belfast prisoners. Even Kathleen Lynn in her diaries mentions though those poor boys. In and, you know, in the Belfast jail, it's, it's awful. She's she's quoting them, and you're going, really? And they're saying that themselves. It, it, it's not really the case. A bit of fake news, and and it worked because uh, they got more doctors in. They got another couple of doctors in, and nurse, and nobody in Belfast jail dies of uh, the flu. But 1,800 people in Belfast died of the flu. So the safest place to be, it would seem, would be in that jail at that time. But you know, because they were getting uh, concentrated help. I'll take this out a bit just so we have a bit of perspective. Yeah. It's always interesting in terms of when you look at pandemics throughout history, and it, not only pandemics, the Irish famine is a classic example. Can you politicize the event or can't you? Right? Can you put a political narrative on it? Yeah. Irish famine, we know quite a few people made mileage out of it. It's not saying anything about the famine itself, it's saying what, people, what narratives people say about it. Mm. Now, there were attempts in different places to politicize narratives of the flu. The problem is, and this is the difference between epidemics and pandemics, which we didn't discuss, right? Epidemic is when it happens in one country. A pandemic is when it happens over several countries around the world in a larger scale. When you realize, you can tell your story, well, this is all because of the British putting people in jail because of the German plot. And you realize people are also dying in other countries. People are dying among the Entente and people are dying on the other side. The allies on both sides, people are dying. People are dying in neutral countries. People are dying in, people not, in areas not connected to the world. And it's interesting to see these local attempts. One of the most uh, interesting that I saw was in Switzerland. In Switzerland, a neutral country, the army is hit very badly because they congregate, right? So the army is hit very badly, not connected directly to the war because they're not involved in the war. Mm. And they don't know what to do. Now, Switzerland doesn't have a tradition of military people dying because it's a neutral country. Mm. So they turn them into national martyrs. They say they died for Switzerland. How long yeah. can that story pick up and how can it last? It can't because people are dying everywhere. Yeah. So all these attempts yeah. to politicize in the end don't work long term. Right, okay. So it's not, it's not you, you can't blame anybody because mm. everyone has been affected by it. I think in the long term you can. But I tell you what, I find it peculiar here. Okay, I want to go back to the question of numbers in a second, right? But obviously a lot of people are dying. But you never hear about any leading Sinn Féin or, or like De Valera or, or, or you know, Griffith or you know nobody dies right do they catch the flu though I mean oh, I no, no. 
Hold on a second. We do have this really, really famous case, which curiously has really escaped the history books. Um, looking at the, the 1918, the seminal 1918, December 1918 general election. And back to my story, um, the, the, the um, conscription, there is um, a guy, Richard Coleman, who has been out in 1916 in Ashburn. He's a war hero, you know, from 1916, from the rebellion. And he's also been in hunger strike with, with Thomas Ashe here before. And Thomas Ashe is the latest kind of Sinn Féin martyr for the cause. And what does Coleman do? He dies in Usk prison about on the 9th of December and the general election is on the 14th mm. and the newspapers are they're wonderful they're making us cry when you read them you're sitting there in buckets of tears because they're talking about the terrible rain and how his poor brothers were kept outside the prison until he died and they could have made it there before he died but they were so cruel in the prison and then they bring back his his body into um from um, into Dunleary, into Kingstown, as it was called then, and all the way into that beautiful church in Westland Row, which I'm sure some of you will know, um, right at the side of Trinity. And it comes into the station right beside it, and there's a thousand people lining on the platform, including the wonderful Mrs. Pierce, who goes to everything that's going. And, um, you know, they're, they're there with all the dignitaries of Finn there because he has died as a result. They're pitching it saying as a result, not a flu, but at the hands of the British through unjust imprisonment. Mm. And so he goes next door into Westland Road Church and his body is left there until after the general election. But the newspapers on the day of the general election are filled with all this detail to hammer the message home about how... Um, uh, you know, where everybody, each of the group, the kind of the trade unionists and the Sherwood Foresters and whatever, are to line the roads all the way to Glasnevin, where he's giving this amazing funeral through the streets of Dublin, flu or no flu. I tell you, I want to kind of go to you on the question of figures here, right? But I just want to get just get just say to the audience, just if you if you have any questions, I'd be very interested if anyone in the audience has any family, you know. Mm. grandparents, great-grandparents who, who may have died of the flu or caught the flu, but just gather your thoughts there on that one. Guy, let's just come back to the question of numbers here, right? And again, you know, I know, you know, we don't, we don't have precise figures, but just to give us ballpark figures, like, well, how many people died? Well, well you see, this, this again is one of the things where I, I, I'm not going to close things, I'm going to open them up again, because I'm amazed when I look at the, at the literature from outside. The, the latest figure, which is supposed to be the authoritative one, was made uh, as a result of a conference in 1998, came out in a book in 2003, so it's already been around for a long time now, for over a decade. Um, and the figure that was calculated, it's been questioned by different people, is 50 million people dying worldwide. But, this is interesting, they write 50 million people in the same sentence. It goes on to say, but it could be twice as much. So are we talking about 100 million or 50 million? Because it says we have no idea. Story right? No, but, but it's incredible. It just shows because, once again, we have whole swathes of the earth which we don't have proper figures on. We have, de we have okay. good figures for, you can do this work. So till, when that book was written, they actually neglected Ireland because there was no work done on Ireland. But that's, that little bit has been closed. Now other places have been closed, but whole areas where we're still in the dark. And even after that, they discovered 10 million in India, just like that. Just like that. <laughs> okay, but well, the bit of research I did in this, like that, that translates into something like between 3 and 5% of the entire world population. I mean, that is absolutely massive, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't know what that percentage figure has worked like, but I mean, it, you know, it, 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 it's pretty big, right? It's big. And, and when you talk about numbers, let's just remember, as we heard in the medical uh, brief in the beginning, 
is that it also comes together with other disease. Influenza doesn't necessarily kill you. What can kill you is the other things that you get as well when your system is weak. Mm, mm. So your death report might write influenza, it might write pneumonia, it might write both, but it might write, so the figures kind of grow as it goes along. And then speculation even begins even bigger with people have researched it. What about other outbreaks of other things that happen? Are they related or not? Mm, mm. We were just talking about that before. Trisha would know about this. The, 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 the sleeping disease. Lethargica. There's a huge outbreak of that. It's called cephalitis or encephalitis lethargica, and it uh, it happened. Um, it was another worldwide pandemic, mm -hmm. and it happened between uh, 1918, supposedly, and 1928 to 1930, uh, were cases of it, and it was another viral disease, and it was associated very closely with the flu. But again, the jury's still out. Was it? the same virus, or was it a mutation of the virus, or was it a, a, a totally independent virus? But it, it, the disease itself had, it was called sleepy sickness because one of the, um, the main symptoms was that uh, people went into a coma. And if you've seen the film Awake, Awakenings, that's what, that was what the, the, those people were suffering from, into comas. that was one of the symptoms. But another one of the symptoms, especially in children, was it caused hyperactivity. It affected a part of a child's brain, if they got it, that, uh, that they lost their moral compass. So a very well-behaved child would suddenly become a very naughty child or a disruptive child or even become a violent become child. A uh, well, uh, well you know, it, it basically, it's, it, they, became, uh, they became people that, that, that their parents couldn't deal with, where they were putting... It's a side effect of recent medicines that have been issued. Has yeah. You probably know more of that. Huh? Yeah. That it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a side effect of some of recent medicines that have been given to, to children. Like the effects on the brain, I mean, that can happen after any viral infection, yeah. after some viral infections that can go up to the brain and you just have this increased kind of permeability in the brain and that can really affect people's uh, mood and moral compass. And you yeah. can even see it in some children who get um, uh, very common childhood illnesses like chickenpox. Some children can be driven absolutely insane by it. They become completely different people. Yeah. And that really is the inflammation and what's going on in the brain just not quite being able to, to act as it normally does. Well, that was one of the main things about encephalitis. But whether that is yeah. about maybe 500,000 people or so died of that, you could have those in. Yeah. It just tells you the notion of how what's reign of speculation we're in. Because when you start yeah. bringing in secular, you bring in diseases which are secondary, which yeah. are connected, then the numbers even grow further. Yeah. So, yeah. Does anybody in the audience want to come in here with a question or, or a comment? Okay. Yeah, just, if, you if you take the microphone, because yeah. so we, we won't hear it otherwise. <laughs> With regard to Ireland, I was just thinking, when you started off, you were talking about Belfast, and you said that they had health officers, and they seemed to, to me, anyway, to, that they seemed to have been well organised. But then, when you started talking about the second wave, and you were saying that Belfast and Dublin did differ because Belfast wouldn't close cinemas or schools. Who do you think reckoned in the country, did Dublin, Belfast, or Cork, had they a better idea, with Cork getting the second wave, did that help them? Or did, which city do you think had more of a handle on it overall within the country? It's, it's difficult to say. Yeah. No, it's, it's very, very hard to call it. I think they all panicked. 
all panicked equally, even though lessons were learned in Cork regarding what had happened uh, previously. Andrew, sorry, can I just jump in there, because you used the word panic, right? Uh, it strikes me that if something like this happened today, you know, people would be like lemmings off the edge of the cliff, right? But it's a much more, you know, global, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a global village now today. It strikes me like, I, I, you know, from reading around this period and other issues, like, I don't sense there's any massive panic about this, or have I got that wrong? I mean, I, I'm in a worldwide fear of death. I, th I think there is a massive panic oh, and it's that? really okay. expressed in the newspapers. Yep. Because first of all, you have to remember when this disease came, now we know it was the flu. Yeah. They didn't. But they yes, had this big, huge fear. Uh, recent wars had shown, like the Franco-Prussian War brought smallpox back in, 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 into Ireland and into local communities. And recent wars had shown that, that the chances of a disease coming back into the civilian community was really, really high. And the British War um, Office was really monitoring this. They just told, told everybody, to, the, the three local government boards in England and Wales and in Scotland and in Ireland, to watch this really closely and to check for outbreaks of, of disease. So there was a massive amount of fear, even at government levels. But also you see this expressed in the newspapers all the time, saying, what's going to happen at the end of this great war when all these soldiers come home? What's going to happen? There's going to be some big outbreak of, of disease. And so instead what they get is something quite different, a familiar disease on a global scale. What you have to remember at the time is that you have a culture of acceptance of, of death that people know. Yes. High infant mortality, yeah. tuberculosis. That's People accept that in society. Death, they, is, normal. They, death is normal. Life, but that's the one, that's the one they know. That's yeah. the one they know. And the reactions are quite a lot like uh, uh, to people who have consumption or tuberculosis. Yeah. You know, people, people react the same way uh, to somebody who's infected with flu as uh, they did to tuberculosis. Were people ostracised then? Who, who, you know, I'm thinking of AIDS, right? The early days of AIDS, uh, the, the, the hysteria about that. Well, you have ostracisation at a number of levels. Yes, at, at social level, but an infected doctor or a nurse is going to be ostracised as well. Uh, it was routine, say, even before the flu, that a, a doctor who became known as the tuberculosis doctor lost a lot of his private practice. Uh, that was quite, quite common in Ireland, and therefore they were reluctant, even as district medical officers, to carry out fully their functions in, in, in that regard, because their private practice would suffer. You've got times, though, where there's a lot of, um, you know, middle class, and we say middle class ladies, who uh, become, you know, nurse the sick. So when you send people ostracised, that they're, they're not being paid for it, they're volunteering, they're going in, they're opening up soup kitchens, they're making food, mm -hmm. they're bringing it out. So Cookstown was an example where they opened up a subscription list and they helped the people, and, and these ladies went out to, to nurse, the, you know, these people or, or give them food. So... If there can be a sort of isolation, but you find that in a lot of places that there was the, the, the philanthropy comes through and, yeah. and that, that sort of uh, middle class uh, ethic of, yeah, of helping people comes through. Campaigning and asking for just people, the, the good ladies, to come forward and Sorry. help. Can I say something about fear? No, I just don't come in. Maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe we'll, we'll say, no, I'll tell you what strikes me about this. <laughs> I does the flu feature in popular culture? Does anyone in this room know of a song about the flu? I mean, God knows we're great in this country of, of writing songs about one disaster after another, right? <laughs> Whether it be the famine or, or defeat of you know, various rebellions, right? 
I don't think I've ever heard this ever, ever featuring in, in, in a song. There was a lot written at the time in, in, in 1919, but it, it hasn't survived. Uh, you know, just like say. What do you mean, Lord, like, what, what do you mean? Your poetry. Oh, there was that. There okay. was, yes. Okay. Okay. So that answers my question. It did feature. In I didn't study a lot of it now, but yeah. uh, Lynn Buckley has covered a lot of what is done in, in Cork. Uh, you have probably yeah. come across it. Just at that point, uh, there was a collective amnesia in relation to the famine. It, 20 years after the, the influenza uh, epidemic, uh, pandemic, um, the school's collection, there was, there was collections of yes. stories. Yes. Right. There's no mention of, of the, the influence no, 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 no. Okay, not at all. Now, this, okay, this, 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 this one I get on to here, right, Guy, because this is your area, right? When I first thought about it, I went straight for the Irish folklore collection in Dublin, years back, and I was disappointed by the results, both in the main collection and in the school's collection. Now, yeah, I have so a lot to say about this one. Yeah, okay. okay, so there is a huge amnesia about this, it seems to me, worldwide. Why is that? No, I'm going to... Okay, let's, <laughs> let's, I'm, I'm going to question the word not, amnesia. Not everyone was dead. I'm going, I'm going to question the word amnesia. Uh, I have a problem with the term amnesia in general. We like to say amnesia about the famine, amnesia about the world war. I don't buy any of these terms as amnesia, but that's a different thing. I'm going to read a quick quote, if I can, of the historian who first raises this question. And it's again this man called Alfred Crosby, who, who writes the first important history book, in my opinion, on the flu uh, in 1976. And he ends up with a chapter, which is the first place to begin any of these questions about memory, because he calls his afterword for the book an inquiry into the peculiarities of human memory. And he says this, the important and almost incomprehensible fact about Spanish influenza is that it killed millions upon millions of people in a year or less. Nothing else, no infection, no war, no famine has ever killed so many in such a short period, and yet it has never inspired all, not in 1918 and not since, not among the citizens of any particular land and not among the citizens of the United States, he's writing the States. This inaptitude for wonder and fear cannot be attributed to the lack of information. Now, I've thought about that a lot. And, there you go. And it's a good, and it's a good, and it's a good question. Just by the way, the, by the by, before, as you might say, but before we go into songs, a bit of trivia. One of Ireland's great songwriters, who writes some of the greatest songs which have entered into folklore, P.J. McCall, dies of flu in Wexford. So just interesting. So the songwriters are silenced. But now, the, the point is different, actually. Uh, when you begin looking at popular culture, and I've been looking at this on a global scale, it's actually remarkable. And this is also a point about the fear. When you say, was there fear or not? Caricatures, cartoons of the Spanish lady. Again, this notion of the Spanish myth of death coming dressed as a lady, knocking on the door and coming in. Another thing to look at, again, at the period, before you get to memory, memory is the next step, uh, the period of uh, folk medicines. There's an hysteria of people looking for any kind of medicine. Like you say, whiskey, anything which will help us because real medicine is not helping. Right? So this whole kind of, and ads being put in papers of saying, you know, this, I've got the cure for this, and people, so there's, people are dying for something that will help them. Questions in memory are, are tougher, so if you want me to address that, if you want to keep on no, staying for so this I, one I, in just, popular culture, there's a bit more to be said. Because it seems to me you may have given part of the answer earlier, when you said it was impossible to politicize the flu, you couldn't blame anybody for it, mm. and maybe that's why it, it, it hasn't been remembered. People remember things when there's a grievance, when they can blame somebody, like the famine, for example, right, or whatever. 
I mean, is yeah, that yeah, part yeah, of the answer? Yeah. Yes and no. Again, also, you've got to be careful about that because when you go to the folk folklore archive about the famine, I won't go into the famine now, the answer is different than you'd think. When people like Cormac O'Grada and other great historians went to look at famine folklore, you realize it wasn't actually the political folklore which was remembered on a local level, mm. right? That's what happens with Mitchell or whatever writes the, the histories. Um, yeah. Other things are happening, and I think the question is much more trickier than we think. We like to talk about amnesia. We like to talk about nothing has been, nothing has been, nobody remembered the flu. There's been neglect, all right. There's been national neglect. There's been historiographical neglect. Historians didn't write histories about it. But on a local, private level, families remembered stories. There's a lot of local memory. There's this gap. It's something that I've been working about in many other topics, including Irish history, but also not in Irish history. It's what I would call social forgetting. It's the gap between what's talked about, what's not talked about in public, public silence, and what's remembered in the home. And there's this dissonance all the time. There's stories, and these stories have survived over time. When a man called Richard Collier, who was a private, um, an independent historian, in the 1970s, and he wrote these kind of popular histories of World War II and different things, decides to do a project which we should have been doing now, it should have been done many times since then. He decides, privately funded, he's got no funding, but he's got money of his own, decides to send out letters around the world and place ads in different countries around the world. This is the 70s, right? We're years after, half a century after the Great Flu. And he gets these tidal wave of responses from countries of people who remember stories of the flu that they'd heard from their parents and grandparents. And the memory is there, just nobody bothered to ask them. When the folklore collectors are going around, it's not in the handbook of what they're supposed to ask. They're supposed to ask, do you remember any rebellions in your area? Do you remember any of this? Do you remember any of that? Nobody's going to ask about any disease, and if you do, you might ask about TB or something which is obvious, not about flu. So there's other things happening there, but the stories are around, and the tidal wave of responses that he gets, he writes a book out of it, which was neglected by historians, because historians like neglecting folklore. So nobody paid attention. It's a remarkable book full of anecdotes. His archive is sitting in London, hasn't been touched, hardly been touched, full of letters and responses, where people held on to pictures from their family from the time, remembering the stories. So there's a gap here. There is a lot of memory around, but it wasn't collated. Uh, contributions from Ireland are very yes. small. Yes, but also people didn't ask yeah. the question. The ads weren't yeah. placed in Ireland or it doesn't fall yeah. on the radar. Yeah. Now, this goes onwards when you ask, let's remember, the great flu is being overshadowed by the great war. A great culture of memory and remembrance is being developed around the great war. Even in Ireland, we like to think we forgot it. It's not quite true. So what is the great memorial park in Dublin doing there? There are monuments, there are parades, there are things. There's memory of the great war happening even in Ireland. That's been forgotten. There's a tradition of commemorating the Great War, but the Great Flu, there isn't one museum, one monument, any public event for the Great Flu. There isn't a stamp. All these modes of commemoration don't seem to fit flu. You can't turn it into a heroic mold. Mm. Artworks, literature, the lost generation, the famous lost generation of America that went over to fight in France and afterwards can't find themselves, the Hemingways, etc. Um, many of them suffered from flu. But when they write, they don't write about flu. It doesn't fit into literature. There's a mm. couple of works of literature they can think about, even in a story in Irish they can think about, um, that was written about the flu, and yet none of them make the cultural canon. It's not like writing about the big events of history, about the rebellions. It's a story by uh, Joseph O'Grean, I think. Okay. Right? Uh, and it's written in Irish, and it's a small story which mentions the flu. And so there's a few cases like that, but it doesn't make the cultural canon paintings. We can think of great paintings about the Great War, 
There are a couple of famous paintings, not famous, but famous artists who drew the experience in the flu. Edvard Munch, the Norwegian painter who writes, he paints the screen, you know, we all know the screen, the iconic image of the beginning of the 20th century, the Fan de Siaco. He suffers from Spanish flu, from Spanish influenza, and he does sketches of himself, self-portraits, but they're not the canon, they're not the famous paintings well, associated with him. History Island yeah. was ahead of everybody in this yeah, case. Yeah, yeah. History Island was there. Uh, Egon Schiele, famous uh, Austrian artist. His family dies one by one from the flu, and he sketches himself with the family. He's painting himself about to, be, about to die from the flu. So you have these remarkable paintings, but again, it's not the famous paintings of the 20th century. There's no place when historians don't know how to deal with this. It doesn't fit on the radar. And there have been attempts, there have been local attempts to try and turn this into a local narrative, and it's remarkable. And I can tell you stories from around the world because they're remarkable. But it doesn't enter into a kind of a cultural national memory. Do you have any theory memory. on why that is, Guy? I mean, I mean what you say is indirectly true, but... The, the, there's you know, lots of speculation being thrown. Alfred Cosby, again, is the place to start. He throws a whole series of things saying, including, for example, um, first of all, overshadowed by the Great War, beyond anything. Right. Okay, right. memory of the Great War takes center stage. The fact that it's influenza, we're not used to commemorating something like influenza. Right, you're used to commemorating other things, but influenza itself seems like such a common disease. It doesn't seem like the kind of thing that, that hits there. The fact that even doctors perhaps have a prob problem here, the shame of it that they couldn't, there wasn't an answer for it. There you go. Yeah, but it's good. It's a good distraction. The fact that, exactly, for my better points, each time there's a tooth there. I've got to wait for this one. I've got to time this one there. The fact again of the, of the W graph has been floated, the fact that People in their 20s and 30s are dying, but the famous figures, the world leaders, are older than that. Yeah. So you don't have iconic figures in that sense. You have certain iconic figures, but not the, you know, the top range in that sense. So there's a whole series of reasons, but I think beyond anything else, and this is a tough one, which I've been thinking and I can't quite articulate it, because it's something you can't quite articulate. It's narratability. It's a hard narrative to tell the memory of the flu. It crosses borders, it's transnational, it's global. We're used to thinking about history as local, is, is as national. Big, is it too big? It's, it's massive on the one scale, and also how do you tell these stories? It's mass death on a scale which can't be properly explained. It's all around there. We're not used to thinking of memory in those terms. Now we might be developing tools to do that. Mm. But it's, it's not something you have. And in a way, the memory of the flu is only happening now in many ways, the public memory. It's interesting how it's entering into popular culture now. A series like Downton Abbey suddenly puts into the story of, puts the flu into it. It wouldn't have happened in a TV series 20 years before that, but it's happened in recent years. The change, to a large degree, and I think Ida would agree with that, has been the Mexican flu wave. That's when the moment where the world realizes you can have another pandemic like that, it's dangerous, and you look for historical precedences. And that's where it begins filtering into novels. I have a whole collection of home of cheap novels. None of them are famous novels. That suddenly begin, people, authors realize there's a, there's a story to be told here. Mm. So they write it, but none of them made the Booker Prize list. Mm. None of them have written by a Nobel Prize winner. So it's waiting to come in there. Movies. More and more movies mention it in different places. But there isn't a movie about the flu. So it's coming in there, in bits and pieces. I, I'm really hoping to sell the film rights, you know, to... Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
and, and this book will change how we look at it in Ireland as well. And well, Trisha's work, which is coming out, is all changing. There's never been a move at the famine either until this year. Yeah. They won't have uh, Tommy, can, can I just add in two things to that? One was that, as Andrew mentioned earlier, when the Ireland into which it came, okay, we were going through this massive decade of centenaries and strife and everything, but in the private sphere, you had 20% of the annual 70,000 or so deaths every year were children under the age of five. This was a group that was also massively hit by the flu. People were used to having death year in, year out from things like measles, TB, bronchitis, and you know, all sorts of things like that. And scarlet fever was a major, major killer. Mm. So here was just another disease that was killing, albeit that it was killing in great numbers, because you'll see all over the country, you know, that entire families are found dead behind closed doors. It's tragic. But, so a stoic but, but, but it is that partly that it's just another part of death. And I've interviewed about 50 people, I suppose, over the years. Um, and first, the first thing I found about memory was that when I started talking about it in 2007, people were having a hard job relating to it because there was no national narrative. Because as historians, we hadn't yet written a story that they could make themselves part of. And so they didn't know how to do it or what it was. It was just, my father said, we just thought it happened in every local village and that a few people got sick. We didn't realize we were part of a bigger picture. But since 2009, you see this thing about what a pandemic is. And you also see all these scary programs on the History Channel talking about, well, if this is 2009, imagine if uh, 1918 happened again. Anyone in the audience want to come in? Because, yeah, the gentleman here, Thank you. No, it, it's just that what occurs to me is that, is that the, the commemoration or whatever of, of the flu epidemic doesn't serve any useful function in terms yeah, of yeah. pushing, you know, the, the, you go back to the famine because that's useful in provoking republicanism, let's say, in, in this country or whatever. Uh, it, it, it isn't something that you can use to achieve a political point at this point in time. Yeah, I think that's, that's a fair observation. But it, is, but it is a good question to ask of the decade of commemoration. Because we're in a period of hysterical commemoration in Ireland, it's a decade which is, Ireland has gone commemoration mad. But it's always interesting to ask what you commemorate and what you don't commemorate. Okay, so we've done 1916 inside out. Um, but is the great flu a less important topic? More people die, of course, of the flu than the Easter Rising, than the War of Independence, than the Civil War combined. But, you know, it's, it's an interesting point. What is on our radar? What is there not? And it's, yes, on the one hand, we say, does it serve a purpose or not? Does it, you know, tell us a national story? But we're in another age now. We can start thinking about, and it also does serve a purpose because medical history is conscripting it for the, the importance of public medicine, of taking a vaccination if another epidemic begins in some country so it won't turn into a pandemic. But even beyond that story, historically, it deserves to be remembered. It deserves to be treated. That's why I really think these are important things. I think a book like this, which puts it on the map of what happened in Ireland, I think it's a, it's a historiographical landmark. And I should actually say something for you, Tommy, because you're being a bit modest yourself here. You said about the cover of the book. I think history of Ireland was ahead of everybody. When the historical establishment, I haven't seen the Irish Historical Studies Journal, which I've written for in different things, articles, I haven't seen them dedicate an issue or even publish any article about the flu. But history of Ireland way back already issued and made an you, know, you, you realize that it has historical importance. Well, I'm sure plenty of editors of other places have said, you know, send me another book about a topic that I realize. Don't publish that because nobody's going to is interested in that. Well, thank you very much, Guy, for those kind words. Listen, I, I want to, yeah, just something else here. Yeah. Actually, my 
mother's parents died in, in this black flu. They died within, I think, five days of each other in, 20, in 1918. Mm. And they must have died in hospital because they were four small children. And they all lived, they were, I think, fairly well off. So but that story is preserved in your family, though. No, I just know it changed, of course, their lives completely. Parents. No, but just going back to Guy's point, that's a story that's been within your family. Yes. Yeah. Yes, okay, well, that bears out your point. In Cork, yes, and they lived in College Road. It was, it was just a fact, but they never, I mean, I heard no more about it. Mm. It was mm. like you say, everybody was dying all around for one reason or another. So tell me, did they lose the children then would, would have had no income? Sorry? The children had, obviously, if they, both their parents died? Both their parents. Died. So what happened to the family then? And did they lose their home? Did they have to move house? No, as far as yeah, they lived in the country. They lived in the country. Still, when they moved into his house, it was yeah. like, um, like yeah. there somewhere. And do you think they had a lot of fear then about disease going forward? I never heard yeah. about a disease. Mm. But of course, they lost their parents very, very mm. young. The youngest was six weeks. Oh gosh, you know, how sad. And with the four of them, of course, their whole life was totally traumatized because of this. Mm. Uh, and it has long legs, doesn't it? You know, you were here telling us a hundred years ago. Oh goodness! Well, I think if you, if I mean, I, if you wander around Glasnevin Cemetery, just look at some of the headstones. You'll you'll see clusters. You know, 1918. You know, 1919, or, or even you know, husband and wife within very you know short periods of time between each other. You know. So that's that's the typical victim, yeah, profile. Can I just get, just to, to wrap things? Sorry, I don't. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Mm. Now, thank you. Yes, Andrew, yeah. Regarding, say, Cork in 1956, yep. you had a polio outbreak. You're probably familiar with it. It would have receded into history like flu and everything like that, except that there were permanent reminders mm. after it because you had calipers on children yep. and you had people on crutches. Yep. And that prompted a response in Cork yep. uh, initially to provide rehabilitation, then education, and it grew into what is the, the Cope Foundation today that looks after about 2,000 people mm. in those services. So it, it, medical disasters don't necessarily have to be forgotten. I agree. Because maybe there was a physical reminder in the Cork experience. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you died, as somebody put it, yeah, you died. But there's still a practical thing that those people have to be looked after. So there's a reason to, to maintain yeah. the memory. You know. Well, there was also the fact that uh, it could be done from Dublin when Cork had no facilities, so they had to respond locally, voluntarily, initially, yeah. to grow an organisation to do that. Listen, I just want to wrap this discussion up. Uh, some, it has to happen somewhere, right? And Mike, like, a couple, two questions. Uh, one is, obviously this came as a huge surprise when, when this 
the pandemic arrived, but then just as mysteriously, it disappears. Mm -hmm. So what's, what, what was the response to that? I mean, did they all tap each other on the back and say, we did a great job, we've just seen off this, <laughs> this killer disease, or had they any idea what, you know, like, it, 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 it would be just as mysterious its passing as its arrival. It's Does it figure in the, in the, in the, the, the medical literature at all? No, funnily enough, in Belfast, you don't, uh, well, it was a very mild wave, the third wave in Belfast in 1919, and, and it isn't even mentioned in the medical officer's annual reports. Having said that, it was only one paragraph, it's a 1918 report when there was quite a, a, a big uh, death toll. I think they just moved on. The next epidemic was around the corner. As we said before, I think there was a measles or a whooping cough epidemic later on that year. And then, and then this is the next one. Yeah. And then that's, that's the next one you're talking about. Yeah. But when the next epidemic comes, or the, or the fear of the next epidemic, I think, of flu in the 1920s, they do sort of uh, rally around. They, they get a vaccine. The, the vaccine is now um, recommended by the local board, and they all get the vaccine, and the vaccine in, um, in Hollywood, County Down, not Hollywood, <laughs> Hollywood County Down, and in, in Lurgan and Moyer and places like that, whereas they wouldn't have even considered it. So they are spending the money, which they wouldn't have spent before, because it was all to do with the local government board, and, um, and it, it, was money, it was money, and they didn't want to spend it um, on the sick, really. If they could get away with, with it, they wouldn't, they wouldn't spend it. So I think they've learned a little bit from that pandemic, moving forward, uh, but as you say, the next, the next one's round the corner, a different disease. That tees up my final question here, and, uh, and I don't want to send people home anxious, right, but my question is, could this happen again? Okay, I think we need some medical, medical you know, detailed medical advice in this, yeah. Um, absolutely, yeah. It, it could happen, um, a pandemic, everybody's gearing up for another pandemic. It, it will happen. It, what, it will happen. It will happen. I mean, that's the laws of nature. Um, yeah. And I don't want to sound like, oh, chicken licking the sky's falling down. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, this is the nature of viruses and uh, infections. They will infect people. They'll transmit across species. What we need to make sure is that we're ready for it and we have, we're prepared for when it does happen. And there's a huge amount of research and a huge amount, I know we give out about governments and the EU and things like that, but there's a huge amount of discussion and plans put in place that if it does happen, how do we make sure, how can we pick it up as early as possible and how can we put those plans into place as quickly as possible so as few people as possible uh, get the infection? And if they do, how do we keep them as healthy uh, as Possible. But presumably, if it does happen, it's mm. going to affect the poorer parts of the world worse, the people with, 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 with less good medical infrastructure and so on. It depends on what that right. infection is. I mean, you could already say there's massive, there, there are pandemics of various diseases already, yeah. TB, malaria, HIV, in low-middle-income countries. The, there are, you know, there's a lot of people modelling kind of the spread of viruses around the world and there's very few times that you see Cork mentioned in a, in a nature paper, but one of them was, you know, if, 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 a, if a virus outbreak happens in Schiphol or in Heathrow and they modelled how quickly that could disseminate just because the, the nature of travel these days, it is surprisingly quick. And I think to some extent the, the global um, movement of people so easily is actually in some ways similar to, to 1918, that people are moving all over the world even quicker than, than back in 1918. So the key thing is, 
it, it will happen, but we're far more ready and we understand what's, what, is, what is coming at us and we're much better at being able to, to nip it in the bud. I wouldn't say that we're, you know, we are completely kind of proofed against a, a virus that will happen. I mean, we saw this in 2009 uh, when, when the uh, swine flu happened. Um, it, there was still, we, we were supposedly prepared for it then, mm. and there was still that lag time that people, you know, in the field were kind of saying, this isn't acceptable, that amount of, of lag time. So it's kind of gone back to, again, squeezing that time down. But there will be more pandemics. But one thing we know for sure is having a war going on at the time doesn't help. So, you know, avoid war at all costs, oh, I'd say, uh, would be a good start. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, then you look at it, you know, that's, yeah, yeah. That, that's human infections. I mean, another thing, I mean, it cast your mind back to not so long ago, the foot and mouth outbreak. And that was in livestock. And that caused a lot of economic um, uh, disruption as well, not just to, to agriculture, but to, to, you know, just global movement of people as well. So, you know, there's, there's human pandemics and there's potentially, you know, agricultural livestock issues as well that, that can cause a lot of harm. And there's a lot of people looking at kind of what's called biodefense and how, and especially after 2009-11, I was at a lot of meetings in the US where it, the whole thing was like, what's the next thing that's going to happen? And there was various people going, oh, there's a strange virus in Argentina that's going to be the next big pandemic. And somebody from France got up and said, it's going to be flu, just leave it off in the New York subway, you're all terrified. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is a lot of ideas of what can come and but how we, how we prevent it from spreading. Okay, I think we'll, on, on that contemporary note, uh, we, we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, just as a final comment, I say to, to, to all the ladies in the audience, next time your nearest and dearest complains of man flu, you know, just tell them to pull themselves together and get out of bed, right? Um, <laughs> No, I just have to thank everybody. This is a very interesting discussion. I mean, I, I do take on board with guys saying that we, you know, this, we're only scratching the surface of, of this thing here. And I'm looking forward to, to, to reading uh, Ida's book. Um, but listen, I'd like to thank uh, our panel here, um, Andrew McCarthy, uh, Patricia Marsh, Guy Biner, and Ida Mill, and you, the audience, and particularly those people who, who participate. And Anne Moore, thank you. You should have been on the panel here as well, actually, right? Uh, I'd like to thank you in particular. And I'd like to thank Florence and the lads on, on sound. Uh, so I hope to see you back here again for another History Ireland Head School. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was great, guys.